Hello, and welcome back to this month's installment of Conversations at Jackrabbit Slims. I'm Craig Cohen, and this month I am really excited to bring on somebody who I've podcasted with probably almost as much as I've podcasted with anybody else, and we'll get into our podcasting um, history, but I, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Ryan Rebalkin. Ryan, welcome. Hey, Craig. It is an honor and a privilege to be on this podcast with you. Uh, I've legitimately have been looking forward to guessing on this one. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about it for a while and I've made sure that you, you, you keep that commitment. So (laughs) I I wasn't, I wasn't worried. So people who only listen to this show and and don't know me from my other shows, I do a podcast called Slycast, the Sylvester Stallone fan podcast. And Ryan does a podcast called Going the Distance, the Rocky series podcast. And we've, Connected through that and our shared love of the the movies of Sylvester Stallone and our podcasting relationship developed to the point that we now have a network devoted to Sylvester Stallone podcast that includes my slycast, Ryan's Going the Distance, and our friend Doug's Rocky Minute, as well as a monthly show that we do together, uh, which is really, really fun. Uh, Ryan, do you want to talk a little bit about Going the Distance? Yeah, great introduction on how those three podcasts work together on one network. That's great. Thank you. You you can cut that and use it uh, however you like. All right. Well, yeah, maybe I will. I think people that listen to the show understand it now. But for any new listeners, we, we uh, welcome you to the to that network. Uh, so yeah, basically what I've done for I guess almost five years now, I've been covering the Rocky franchise, and we are nearing the end. So it makes sense after five years. What we've done is we're about to start season eight, which will be covering Creed two. And just like it sounds, we cover each film in chronological order and just kind of break down the films as it goes along. We've had different guests, uh, guest hosts, interviews, people that have worked on the films, uh, some of the, uh, I guess you could say side actors that have worked on the films, which have always provided very fun stories. And uh, yeah, it's been a really, really amazing experience going the distance with the Rocky franchise. And uh, after this season eight is over, if anyone's interested in this podcast, but doesn't like Rocky, but maybe likes Rambo, we're doing the same treatment for the Rambo films afterwards. Yeah, I cannot wait for that. I mean, your Rocky coverage has been probably the best Rocky coverage that's on the internet. You know, for example, we did a single split episode for Rocky one and Rocky two. Um, that was two hours in length. We've done a couple of anniversary uh, episodes for those movies um, since then, but you've devoted multiple episodes, multiple hours per episode to breaking down each film. And uh, it's like I said, it's the most in-depth coverage you can find on a podcast. And um, I can't wait to, to see you guys take a step at the Rambo series, just because there's so much to analyze in those films and uh, it should be really exciting. Oh, thank you. I, I do appreciate that. I'm looking forward to it as well, quite frankly. All right. So if you're not a Rambo fan, Rocky fan, Sylvester Stallone fan, well, I've got another one for you. <laughs> if this doesn't sell you on listening to me, especially after you listen to this episode of Craig, I don't blame you. I get it. I understand. But I do another podcast called the worst of the best podcast. And it's funny. I always have a hard time explaining this one. I don't know why. Once you listen to an episode, it's easy to understand. But what mm-hmm. we do is we just take, basically we take any kind of subject, whether it's an artist, uh, a music artist, uh, a, a movie celebrity or or even a conspiracy theory list, we take the best of that thing or that individual and we break down what makes that thing or that list the best of that subject. And then at the end of it, me and my guest host, we will 
to say, hey, we think this is the worst of the best. So no matter what the list is, no matter how good something is, or, you know, for example, you, Craig, came mm-hmm. on the show and you broke down Kisses, what you felt was Kisses' best album, Destroyer. Yeah, Destroyer yep. uh-huh. And we broke that down. So even, even that, which is your favorite Kiss album, or at least one of your top favorite Kiss albums, even you had to admit there was a song on there that wasn't the best. There was a yeah. worst. There, there is a ranking. Yeah. Do you remember what it was? It was, it was spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler. It, it, we we both came to the same conclusion that it was uh, great expectations. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I hear it in my head now. All right. So there you go. There's the plugs. Yeah, and and I've also I we did a couple episodes. We did the uh, Robert De Niro episode together. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then we also did a Jeffrey Epstein episode, didn't we? <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, that was great. That was a lot. Those were actually some top downloads. The Jeffrey Epstein's got some pretty good numbers. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll include a link to all the, the the stuff we just discussed in the in the show notes, and uh, it's all worth listening to. It's um it's some some great podcasting content, and uh, again, it's it's just a thrill to be able to. To, to go into another lane with you and, and talk this movie because uh, I know you have a lot to say about it. So let's sort of set the scene here. Um, I know me and you were, we're in a couple, you know, age wise, we're, we're just about the same age. I think I'm a, a couple years older than you. So in 94, when Pulp Fiction came out, is it a movie you had a chance to see in the theater or was it something you caught on home video? Oh, my friend, I saw in the theater. Okay. 90, 94, I was 19 years old. I was probably 18 when it came out in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was officially an, a, an adult. And this is an adult film. <laughs> and so I uh, I got to see it without showing my ID, though they probably made me because I had a baby face. But all that being said, all that being said, the reason why I saw it in the theaters, number one, I've always been a huge movie goer. Not so much in my adult years, as much as my, like, boyhood to like early 20s back in the blockbuster days and before i used to go to the i was specifically like go to the older videos Mm -hmm. uh, on the shelf like the the ones where you could you could rent at least in my town you could rent like uh five movies for five dollars for five days i think it was one of their deals right and i love doing that kind of stuff i would just go there i would say i'll take that one i'll take that one i'll take a horror i'll take an action i'll take a drama i'll take a foreign film and i would just i just i honestly i don't know why i miss those days i don't know why movie movie experience watching was so different back then than it is now i don't know have you have you found that the the thrill of it's gone-ish a little yeah bit? I, I think it's a couple of things ryan i think it's also when you're that age you just have so much more free time <laughs> yeah i think that's part of, i know that's part of it too is there, there was no internet back then obviously and uh gaming was just very simple games they didn't spend hours and hours playing video games so i think when it came to free time movies were definitely a, a wonderful uh, escape uh, to fantasy land. Yeah. And well, I well also, and not to get too far away from your, your story here, but I also think you're, you're, it was a unique time too, where, you know, we were probably the, fir- we were the first generation to grow up with home video. So mm-hmm. yes, true. Yeah. The experience of going down the um, video store aisle and renting stuff either based on word of mouth from from friends or something you might have read in like Fangoria or whatever you know movie magazines you had access to, um, or just the the artwork on the cover of the box or the write up mm-hmm. on the back of the box. So I think that also made the experience kind of uh, exciting because you were committing to something. Like if one of those five videos you rented wasn't good, you, you know you. you you not only wasted your money, but you wasted some time too. Whereas nowadays we can go through Netflix, Amazon prime, Hulu, and we just blow through movies. So I think, I think you're, you're onto something there in the, in the sense too, that 
our choices used to be a lot more important. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but so this film, the reason why I saw this film in theaters, of course, in 94, unless you were like a real true pre-internet somehow film nerd that you knew who Quentin was, then I applaud you. There are those out there that knew Reservoir Dogs, but I I did not. Uh, I did not know Reservoir Dogs. I saw that after seeing this and enjoying this film. But the reason why I saw this film, my friend and I went to the movies as we always did every Friday night. We kind of just went and said, oh, what's out? What's, you know, let's go see a film. And Uma Thurman, even to this day, she's 50. I still find her very beautiful. That is, you know, age time. I'm 45, so I'm not one to talk. So, uh, but back then she was 24 when this came out. And I was, uh, of course, I was uh, 18. I had a huge crush on her. I had a, a from Dangerously Asians. Uh, I had a little nudie scene there when she was 18. Uh, but I was like, I've had a huge crush on her ever since. I just find her extremely attractive and talented i love her voice her face there's i was just you know i was a teenage kid right so i was infatuated with this actress and uh, i always enjoyed her too because she always did these weird quirky different um movies she wasn't really in the rom-com scene she's had a few but she never did those kind of art films independent films and uh so when i saw her on the cover of this movie called pulp fiction she's lying on her bed in kind of like a teenage kind of damsel in distress. I don't know, reading a, what looked like a comic book or so the cover looked different. The the name of the film seemed different. The cast, then I saw the cast. I'm like, what? The, what? Who, like John Travolta, Bruce Willis. What are we talking about here? Of course, I, the only actor I really knew was Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman and John Travolta. And I never saw a John Travolta film in my life. Are you kidding me? Why would I ever watch that guy? <laughs> Look who's talking maybe back then, you know? So uh-huh. it was, it was a combination of, you know, intriguement, uh, but at the end of the day, I actually saw this movie be straight because of Uma Thurman. Okay. Okay, cool. And I mean, what was your initial, you know, takeaway after, you know, you guys left the theater on that Friday night? Was it a movie that, you know, you kind of watched and re- then revisited a couple years later, or was it something that sort of stuck with you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would like to apologize to your listeners. I babble. I'm, I apologize. I'll get to the story. I, I will. I promise. So obviously like everyone who saw this movie at the time, I was blown away because it was just insane. I will get into some of the scenes, mm-hmm. but I was I, a combination of feeling uncomfortable, elated, uh, intrigued, surprised, blown away, bewildered, confused, it was everything that a movie's supposed to do. And as an 18 year old kid, I was just like, movies can do this. I'm I, I like, I, I was just absolutely amazed by this. And so it went beyond, of course, now it wasn't, a, it wasn't even a Uma Thurman film anymore. It was a cast of characters. And I was interested in every story segment. And I left the theater, like, who is this guy? What's going on? And then the moment that you start hearing, always oh, do another film, it's another film. I became this Quentin Tarantino fan. Yeah, it was, um, I, you know, I, you, you kind of hit on something that, you know, maybe you're um, a, a couple minutes earlier that I that I think I, we've talked about him a lot on the podcast. But John Travolta and I and I hate to be that guy that, you know, that says unless you were there, you can't really know it. But invariably that happens when you get older and have life experiences. But mm-hmm. John Travolta is such a different name today than he was in 94. And I, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think you can sort of overstate how important Travolta's performance and his character was to that film. And 
it showed, you know, an early uh, indicator of the type of people that Tarantino would cast. And that's one of the things I really, really appreciate about him is he doesn't care if somebody's bankable or if they're a box mm-hmm. office star. You know, he appreciated, you know, Travolta's performance, you know, in Blowout and, you know, probably the, you know, the two disco movies he did, sure. one of them directed by Sly. Yeah. And he stuck to his guns and he cast Travolta in the movie and Travolta got an Oscar nomination and it basically gave Travolta the next, what, 10 to 15 years of his career. I mean, now he's pretty much where he would have been <laughs> had he never done Pulp Fiction. But um, I right. mean, those those prime earning years for him, I mean, that was the years where he made you know, the most money he probably ever made in his career, you know, Face Off, Broken Arrow. Yeah. Um, I mean, he had a, he had a run of film. So um I really, like I said, I I don't think you can overstate how important Travolta was. Yeah, well, even even I remember again when I was eighteen when this came out. Like I said, I knew Travolta only from, I guess, of course, uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever and and uh, his Look Who's Talking in Greece. So to me, he was just a a goofy singing, dancing, baby talking, whatever type individual. I, like I didn't know who this guy was, and but now that I know QT a little bit. Uh, I recognize what he saw, you know, uh, when he cast John and the movies that you mentioned, those are films as a, again, as an early teen, I would never have gone out to watch oh, yeah. a John Travolta, John Travolta film from late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the ages a little bit. I, I wanted to bring that up. John Travolta was 40. Yeah, the, we, <laughs> isn't that weird? Me, that's, that's not lost to me. The fact that I watched that movie and I say, wow, I'm older than Travolta was. I'm, yep. I'm older than Travolta was by a lot. <laughs> You're actually older than Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson was 46 in this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uma Thurman was 24. I looked up some of them that wants to suck out. And uh, Bruce Willis, this one really surprised me. Not a batter, but then I was watching it. Like he did look. But he was 39. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That, okay. Okay. Because Bruce has always just been the older guy to me. I mean, even with the Die Hard film, when that came out, I was like 11 or 12 or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, like it, it just blows my mind that Bruce in this film was 39. 39 year old to me is six years younger than I am. That's a young kid yeah. in some ways. And so, <laughs> like, um, let's talk about Bruce. Yeah. He was good in this film. Yeah. And, you know, uh, some of my previous guests have sort of pointed out, you know, how impactful uh, Bruce Willis's performance in this movie mm-hmm. was in the sense that, you know, it persuaded maybe isn't the right word, but it, it got a lot of actors interested in going below their, their pay grade in terms of budget wise. Um, I mean, the, the entire budget for this movie was somewhere around $7 million. And I'm sure Bruce Willis was paid that just for Die Hard 2 alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for him to come on board this project, take a, a pay cut, I think that speaks to his his character at the time, at least. I mean, we can sort of talk about what Bruce Willis has become and, you know, the straight to, you know, streaming or DVD sort of stuff we see him in now. But well, yeah, then, yeah, his route now is the John Travolta route of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and who, who, hey, who can fault the guy? He probably does two no, days work on a movie and gets paid whatever he gets paid. But I, again, yeah, that was that was a big deal because you didn't see somebody like Bruce Willis in a movie like Pulp Fiction. And again, it's, it's one of those things, unless you were there, I mean, there was a point where Bruce Willis was a really, really, really big star. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I find it, I find it very, um, 
commendable to Bruce and in particular Bruce, because in 94, I think of all the people on that placard, he was the biggest star mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And like he, he was still a box office draw in the early 90s, to, and especially in the late 80s. So to have his face in that poster was a big draw, I think, for some people, too. And I would I would suspect the same way I entered Pulp Fiction via Uma. I think a lot of people entered that movie because of Bruce. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure he was a gateway for a lot of people. Yeah. So let's talk about QT. Is there I actually wanted to I've actually wanted to do a worst of the best with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to talk about too much about that. But I just want to say as a film director and writer. I, I have yet to be disappointed. I don't care what anyone says about any of his films. I love every single one of them. They all bring a different... They, they, like, this guy cannot write a bad film. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, my relationship with, with Quentin as a filmmaker um, is, you know, probably unique in the sense that there was a, a period of time where he was my ultimate favorite filmmaker, um, and then I cooled off on him a little bit. And then once upon a time in Hollywood sort of re-energized me and is, is basically the reason I'm doing this podcast probably is it, you know, reminded me what an important filmmaker he was for me. And the one thing I'll say about Tarantino is there's certain films he makes reservoir dogs, pulp fiction, the first kill bill, where the first time you watch it, you know, you're watching a great film and it sticks with you. And then there's other films where you see them, they might not connect as much. Uh, for me, Django Unchained was completely like that. I saw that in the theater, didn't really leave the theater feeling great. I knew I'd, I'd watched a good film. Um, and then a couple months ago, me and my wife watched it and I appreciated it a lot more than I did. And, you know, that happens with other films and other filmmakers. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you, Ryan. I mean, in terms of batting averages, um, you know, Tarantino's made what? 10 films, nine, I guess, if you count. Um, well, Kill Bill Kill is Bill was one, one film. One, one film. film. Yes. Um, yeah, well, put it out on D, put out the uh, the full cut on DVD, uh, uh, Quentin, and then I'll, 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 oh, I'll stop, say that. Stop that. <laughs> we know it's one film. Come on now. Well, actually, not to divert too much, uh, when I was still living in New Jersey, um, probably a year or two before I moved out here to Las Vegas, there was a great um, theater um, group of guys. They were, they're still around. They're called exhumed films and they did a lot of um, special screenings and they actually had a relationship with Quentin and he sent them the film reels of kill bill, the whole bloody affair. And uh, Mm. me and my brother went to Philly uh, one afternoon um, and actually got to see Quentin's complete version. It's not just kill bill one and two, you know, bumped together. There are um, differences. And I'm sure if you use Google, um, you can find those differences. But uh, to me, it's, it's, um, it's really, uh, it's a shame that the, that the the whole bloody affair hasn't been released on Blu-ray. I'm sure there's money to be made there. And and I don't know what the, Hmm. the holdup is or, or, or what's weird, if it's a rights thing or what, but um. Either way, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, his batting average, um, you know, you can't, you can't dispute it. And it, and it's funny too. I remember when, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction came out, I saw that movie so many times in the theater and I, I probably told the story on this podcast before, you know, the day it came out on home video, mm. I had, I had reserved it at Suncoast video and it was still playing at the dollar theater about 10 minutes from my house. So that morning I woke up, I went and saw the first show at the dollar theater <laughs> And then after it got out, I drove right to the mall in Sun Coast and picked up the VHS copy and then watched it uh, on home video when I got home. 
And I remember the wait between Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown came out Christmas of 97. So we had about a three-year wait, which isn't that long for filmmakers now. I mean, look at the amount of time Christopher Nolan takes between films. Right. But I remember the wait between Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown feeling like an eternity. And then three years is quite a bit. Yeah. And then from between Jackie Brown and then the first Kill Bill, um, you know, now he's... Yeah, now he seems to be a little bit more uh, prolific, although he hasn't announced his next film yet. You know, they've been teasing the Star yes. Trek, R-rated Star Trek or whatever. Well, I think he was going to write it. I don't think his attention was ever the director necessarily. There was yeah. some talk of it maybe being um, uh, his 10th and final film. Uh, oh, is he really going to retire for 10? I can't, I can't imagine, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you just keep moving the goalposts. Uh, one exciting <laughs> thing is um, he is writing, I don't know if you've heard about this, it's coming out in the summer. He's writing a novel version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's, what a great film that was. It really was. Like I said, it's, it's, it, it sort of reignited my love for, for Tarantino. And I think it's a, it's a nice, I, I've called it, I think, like a spiritual cousin to uh, Pulp Fiction. That's fair. That's fair. Boy, I mean, uh, and this is a quint. Look, at the end of the day, I, hope, I know this is a Pulp Fiction podcast, but this is we can't speak about Pulp Fiction without talking about Quentin's work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, back to Pulp Fiction. So, if you want to go back to Pulp Fiction, there are a couple scenes I would like to uh, speak to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there, Pulp Fiction to this day is now my least. I would say favorite. Because I don't want to spoil our future episode together that we might do on the worst of the best year. But it's one I don't watch very often anymore at all. Mm-hmm. For, for, for it's it's actually a very difficult watch. It's it's gritty and it's dark and it's quite frankly kind of gross uh <laughs> compared to a lot of his other and that films. Like you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's not really till the very end of the film things get kind of gory and, and crazy. And uh, not that I'm a, I'm not. It's not that I'm opposed to gore. I love, I love gory. I love horror films. That's the thing. I love films that are gross and brutal. What if the context fit, fits? Whatever. If that's now, what you know, you're going in for. Right. Yeah. Pulp Fiction. Let's just get right to it. The the gimp scene. I, I and I and I actually just watched Pulp Fiction just this morning again for I don't know how many times I've seen it a lot, but I watched it again for the first time in a while, just so I have it fresh in my head before we got together and I knew the gym scene was coming. Um, and I was trying to focus more on, okay, this is Ving Rhames. This is Bruce. And, you know, thinking of who they were at the time and thinking, boy, the, the trust they put in Quentin to do this mm-hmm. scene is really quite interesting to me. Now looking back at this, that Bruce at his stage in his career, you know, has a ball gag in his mouth and, you know, and of course what happened for um, Marcellus. Yeah. Um, I, I very, very interesting that they would put that kind of trust in, in, in Quentin and on their own careers to be involved in this. Basically, you know, I'd say, uh, um, oh, what's that? Uh, like what's that movie that Bur- delivers? Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's that type of sequence. And but that being said, I was watching it's like the whole Gim character, the blood all over their shirts, the ball gags, the slow motion when they're closing the door, the sound effects when Bruce is going up and he comes back. And I'm like, oh my goodness, the scene won't end. <laughs> and, and of course, it does end in a beautiful fashion, but, you know, a great little revenge sequence. Mm-hmm. Couple things that dawned on me that you probably have picked up on, but maybe a listener hasn't. Mm-hmm. Number one, 
let's go back to the watch scene when Butch was given the watch as a boy. It's a great little sequence by Christopher Walken. But it, actually, when I listened to it though, because we know the gag about where the watch was placed, aha, uh-huh, funny, funny, funny. But once you get past, once you just listen to the story of the watch, it's important to remember. I forget the exact dialogue, but Christopher Walken said that his grandfather, great grandfather, talked about a time that they were in the trenches together, that mm-hmm. they had this bonding moment of both being in the trenches together near death. And it dawned on me that was Butch and Marcellus in the trenches together. That's why he went back. It mm. wasn't that he felt bad for Marcellus necessarily, but he realized it was at that moment these two individuals were in the trenches together. And he couldn't abandon his his uh his partner, his his uh, um uh, uh what do you call it in the in war? Um his teammate. Mm-hmm. And he left his teammate, whether he liked him or not, he left his teammate to the enemy. That's why he went back. It was because of the watch story. Wow. You know what? Um, I wish I could say that I had made that connection, but I hadn't. Um, but that's that's a real beautiful connection you made, Ryan. And that helps me kind of get through that sequence a little bit better knowing because uh, we, we I think when I first saw it, we all thought, oh, it's Bruce Wells. Of course, he's going to save the day. No, mm-hmm. the character of Butch, you know. Would it be? It was because that whole sequence was involved because he went back for the watch. Mm-hmm. All those chain of events happened because the watch was left at the apartment, and uh, and that it dawned on him. I'm here now because of the watch, and I would be dishonoring the watch's legacy if I leave this guy to the enemies. Wow! Yeah, yeah. No, that's wonderfully put. Wonderfully put. It adds a whole new uh, dimension to that sequence when I go back and watch it. Because you got to think, why is Quentin telling this? That's the beauty of Pulp Fiction or all of his films. And I got a lot of stuff like this watching this again with the eyes of how are these stories connected? Why are they put in the order they're put in? Like the uh, different little segments. And it's like, oh, this is a callback to this. This is a callback to that. Yeah. Now, my favorite to this day, I love all all of Quentin's films, but my favorite will always be Kill Bill to this day. I love the Kill Bill movie so much. Again, Uma, I'll admit, because it's Uma's greatest career work she's ever done. It's the hottest she's ever been. It, she, I just I just love her in every single scene. I love samurai stuff. I love that kind of stuff. So it's just everything for me. It's, it's the perfect uh, Quentin film. But there were some things in the Pulp Fiction film that kind of echoed or Kill Bill echoed things from the Pulp Fiction film. And I don't know if Quentin did it on purpose, mm-hmm. or if this is where him and Uma came up with the idea of the Kill Bill films. We know they had these discussions during the filming of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, of course, the Fox Force 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, the, she, she talks about her, her pilot, yeah. Yeah, and then those were the uh, same. The uh, what, 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 Oh, man, just hearing me saying this is my favorite film, but I forget. The, the Assassination Squad, what were they called? Yeah, yeah. The Goodness, we're both showing yeah. our balls yeah, here. No, well, whatever. Who could what? <laughs> sorry, we did. sorry, we're not freaking remember every single uh, character's name. And so, yeah, we all know the assassination squad that kill or try to kill um, uh, Kiddo in uh, in the Kill Bill film. So, it's, so if you listen to her talk about her pilot so about the Fox Force Five, it's kind of a little nod or future nod to that same squad you know, that the Asian, the Black Killer, and all this different stuff. And then, of course, Bruce Willis, back to the uh, pawn shop scene, he picked up a samurai sword. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's like, that's really cool. There's that little, I don't know, Quentin Universe connection. Like, was that a, uh, oh, what's the name of those swords again? Uh, uh, Atari. Hanzo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hanzo sword. Was that a Atari Hanzo sword? Can you imagine uh, one did, of those swords ends up at a pawn shop in L.A.? Well, well, well didn't did, uh, in Kill Bill yes, 2, he sold. Michael Madsen yes, say he, he sold it? But then they he find sold it, it, don't they? 
Oh, maybe. Yeah. I think Bill okay. finds it. Okay. Another another connection was the keychain. This is a very subtle. This could be just a, quite a director thing, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Zed's chopper had the Z on it, and of course, the uh, Kill Bill had the pussy wagon. Uh, mm. keychain. So they, they had the keychain kind of representing both the person and the vehicle. So little, little maybe Quentin Tarantino moments there. Yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've I've always loved that. Like you know, the red apple cigarettes; those pop up in mm. other movies. One thing you did bring up that I, I I don't think I've talked about on the podcast yet that's always bothered me uh, from oh. a, from a continuity standpoint in Pulp Fiction is you mentioned the you know Mia talking about her pilot with Vincent, or, or no, I'm sorry. Uh, Vincent and Jules talking about her doing a pilot and um, uh, Vincent says, I don't know what a pilot is. I don't watch TV. Right. Which is a throwaway line. And and I don't know, I I've sort of reconciled to the fact that maybe it's Vincent trying to act cool, but after the guy runs out of the bathroom and attempts to shoot them, you know, Jules is trying to, you know, explain it away as an act of God And Vincent says crazy shit happens. And he says, I remember this one time I was watching an episode of Cops. (laughs) And and I said, Vincent, you don't watch TV, man. Come on. Yeah, interesting. But I do love Jules' response (laughs) to that initial I don't watch TV comment. He's like, well, you do know (laughs) what a TV is. (laughs) You are aware there's a thing called the TV that shows programs. I love that's a great, great little clever responses like that. Uh, I love that subtle humor that it's not quite the, uh, you know, the head getting shot in the car humor, but it's the uh, it's subtle little jokes like that. And I just love that. Those kind of quips, very clever mind writes that kind of dialogue. Oh yeah. But, and, and also, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's also a scene that wouldn't have happened in any other movie, um, you know, prior to Pulp Fiction. I mean, after Pulp Fiction, we saw a lot of people having conversations um, that, you know, sort of, you know, dealt around music or TV or movies and stuff like that. And it happened before Pulp Fiction, but Pulp Fiction really shined a light on that as sort of a filmmaking tool. And as you illustrated, it's not a conversation that's throwaway. Vincent then uses that information when he takes Mia out. Right. That was a great little scene. I think um, what a highlighted scene, the first date. And it's uh yeah i mean that they're they're talking about the the milkshake i don't know why i don't know why it's so it's a combination of the actors delivering the lines we know quentin is a master dialogue writer but let's give her you know credit where credit's due to the actors delivering mm-hmm. the lines as they do and just the the way they uh the way they talk about food in this movie i don't know like that is one tasty burger <laughs> and then you know that you know mm, that's a good milkshake i don't know if it's five dollars but it's, yeah, yeah. Know, just things like that it's uh just the, the food description and how the food is to their senses. I don't know why it's very well done. Yeah. The other thing about that sequence and, and I, and I've talked about it before and I repeat myself a lot on this show, but if you think about, you know, um, uh, Vincent shot up prior to picking Mia up. So he's on that date in the, you know, the throes of however heroin makes you feel. I've never done heroin. Right. That's a hard scene. I I hate that scene. But if you watch, if you watch his performance, you can tell that he's under the influence of something, you know, just Mm -hmm. his, his delivery is slower. His eyes sort of sag a little bit, especially when he's, you know, talking about the milkshake with her. And, and I think it's a real sort of, uh, 
underlooked aspect of, of that performance. And uh, yeah, the whole Jackrabbit Slims sequence is phenomenal. I mean, it's the name of my podcast. It's I was just going to say, the, the, the mold, Slims. Yeah. when I watched it this morning, like, oh, it's Craig's podcast. Yeah, yeah, well, and, there, yeah. and there's so much to see in that scene. I mean, yeah, you basically well get a you get a walkthrough of it. There's just so much going on in there. And, and you sort of get an idea of what, you know, Tarantino's influences were, you know, leading up to Pulp Fiction and um, yeah, a lot of great stuff there. And then I always get a kick out of seeing uh, me, me and my wife have been doing a Sopranos rewatch and we just finished the season with uh, Steve Buscemi um, as, as Tony B and in, in Jackrabbit Slims, he pops up as Buddy Holly. So uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's really cool seeing the, um, you know, the connections and people knew him from, from Reservoir Dogs at that point. So I, I'm sure Fans of Reservoir Dogs made that connection right away, and it was a cool little Easter egg for them. Oh, yeah, nice. Uh, speaking of the Hanzo sword, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most interesting and uh, wonderful and confusing quotes from Kill Bill also describes for me, I think Quentin might have done this for his film. I don't know, or for comparing his work, but I've used this comparing Quentin's work to his own work, where Bud says, if you're going to compare a Hanzo sword, you compare it to every other sword ever made that wasn't made by Atari Hanzo and just replace sword and movie and Hanzo with Quentin. He goes, if you're going to compare a Quentin movie, <laughs> you compare it to every other movie ever made that wasn't made by Quentin Tarantino. Right. And I've always likened that quote to Quentin that mm-hmm. when people say, oh, I'm not a big fan of Jack Brown. I'm not a big fan of uh, Reservoir Dogs or I'm not a big fan of Hateful Eight. I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> you're comparing the Hateful Eight to every other film that Quentin made, but you're not comparing it to other films not made by Quentin because uh, if you watch the Hateful Eight, which some people find long or not as good. I love it, by the way. It's it's just to me, it's it's a it's a Broadway play in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a it's almost like a one scene play. I think it's amazingly well done that he could do that, uh, like a one uh, set almost um, mm-hmm. film but anyways that's the whole point it's like dude i would love to see what what director or writer right now could do could, could challenge themselves to produce something like that uh yeah. like yeah so well not even movie. that but but then also get the financing um right. and the, the budget to do the it yeah and i mean he shot that in 70 millimeter he did a rojo version of it i mean yeah it's a genius like that's what i love about quentin i know we're well it's a, i don't care it's a quentin podcast who's listening to this doesn't like quentin tarantino uh that's what i love about him is he's just not boring <laughs> like yeah. you're watching something interesting something interesting is happening whether it's the dialogue the set pieces the actors that are involved uh the twists the turns just it just something different is going to go on in a Quentin film that you're just not going to get from Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. You know, like something different is happening that's challenging your brain and it's fun to watch. The, like I remember when Django came on the, um, I watched that. Uh, of course, I watched them all on big screen. But I remember when Django first kicked in. I, the first thought I had for whatever reason when it first kicked in on the big screen, I was like, "Yeah, this is Quentin. It just feels like I'm in a, I'm in a Quentin film." And it was just so exciting to know that I'm watching Quentin on film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving ahead through the movie, what other scenes were, did you want to talk about? Well, I, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I wanted to bring up the kill bill connections and yeah, well, one, well, but... well, getting back to kill bill real quick is yeah, of course. Uh, one thing I think if you look at uh, that trilogy of films, if you will, you know, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown and kill bill, mm. probably one um, 
Yeah, I guess one and two. Um, the production design on those films, mm. um, they all have a very similar aesthetic. And I've talked about how Pulp Fiction sort of showed a side of L.A., that a lot of people had never seen before on film and, you know, maybe never saw since, I mean, films like training day sort of got down into the, the, you know, the depths of the dark side of LA, but the production design in those movies are all very similar. Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown visually um, are, are very, very similar. I know there are different aspect ratios, you know, Pulp Fiction's a, you know, a two, three, five, one, you know, true widescreen and mm. Jackie Brown is, you know, the, the, I think the standard one, eight, five, one, I'm getting a little, uh, geeky here but if you look at the production design like look at the the pawn shop versus max cherry's office in jackie brown and that's a, another thing that i really really like about quentin's films is visually especially in that era you were seeing a lot of um uh, continuity i'm not sure if that's the right word or not but right it felt like the same universe yeah no it's uh it's the tarantino universe it's definitely I like to think there's some sort of connection, though not officially there is, but it almost feels like all of these stories are taking place in the same, like there's a chronological chronological uh, order that you'd have to put the films in from the, uh, his kind of Western tinge ones he started doing there in the World War II one and what well, have you. But uh, Well, yeah, I mean, and, and there's there's some obvious connections. You know, you have uh, Vic Vega in, right. uh, in Reservoir Dogs and Vincent Vega, who are, you know, brothers. I think most people know that. But then there's, I, I believe- Well, Michael that- Madsen- yeah, turned down Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, he, well, he, he he wanted to do wider instead. Yeah, well, hey, you, you can't fault him, I guess. You know, I mean, he no, you, you know, I guess hindsight is always is always twenty twenty. So glad he didn't turn down the Kill Bill films. Oh no, yeah. well, that's, Kill Bill was probably Quentin saying, "Hey, I'll give you another shot." But then <laughs> I have to do the research here. But I believe there's a connection between um, the movie producer in True Romance. And one of the characters in, in Inglorious Bastards, I think people have made the connection that the character in Inglorious Bastards is either an uncle or um, a grandfather or something of the movie producer in, in True Romance. So, oh. yeah, you know, maybe maybe one day I'll, I'll sit down and try and, you know, um, collect all of those ways that the, the, the movie sort of connect to each other. I know, I know. This is. Just, I know you don't like to go much closer now and over again there, but I just, I, I want to be there when Quentin talked to certain people that he hired for the film, i.e., the Gimp character. Go back to the Gimp. The actor <laughs> that played the Gimp is the same guy who mm-hmm. wrote Julia Sweeney, who had a bit part at the end with Harvey Cartel, yeah, as his girlfriend there, the Wolf's girlfriend, yeah. She played Pat on Saturday Night Live, yeah, yeah. Well, the Gimp actor wrote that movie. Oh, it's Pat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, t- well, Tarantino did a, a uncredited rewrite on that film as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's what I mean. What a weird connection. So I, I that's I, I wonder where this dialogue between like the yeah. You know, hey, remember me? I wore that suit. I'm going to write your film. <laughs> oh yeah, I was in the same film at the end with Harvey Keitel. Like, there's some sort of connection going on here. But they, they must know each other throughout. But it's just funny when you make those little uh, one or two degrees of separation between very odd characters and. Yeah, and for Julia Sweeney of all people to be the end of the film is very odd. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and then of course you saw Kathy Griffiths there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and actually, if if you go back to the episode I did with uh, Courtney uh, Cronin Dolt, um, who who actually had a couple of encounters with Tarantino around this time, uh, great episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen. But Kathy Griffin and um, Julia Sweeney had a 
uh, they were sort of friends. So um, oh, okay, it, it's, right. it's weird when you sort of thread that needle and see how, how everything connected. And, and that was stuff I didn't learn until I sat down and, and, and chatted with, uh, with Courtney there. I, I, I've listened to every one of your episodes, but I do forget the, yeah, no, it's one of those weird things where it's like, oh, I, yeah, of course I forget. Well, well yeah, no, I, and, I, and I was, I was talking mainly more to our, to listeners. the audience. To I the know, audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you're talking to the audience, but it's like, for the record, Greg, I've listened to every episode. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how you want to, how you want to end this. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I it, feel it, like I, could talk forever about Quentin oh, hey, and his movies. You know, one criticism I've gotten uh, about this show from people that have given me feedback is oh. a handful of people that I've spoken to or that have sent me emails or tweets or anything like that is that sometimes they feel like the episodes are too short. Oh, well, look at that. I, I've, I've <laughs> fucked that trend. Well, you know, my, um, my initial concept for this show was to have it sort of be 30 to 45 minutes. Right. And it was mainly as a, a challenge to myself because with Slycast, we were doing long form um, podcasting. You know, I, we were doing, you know, two, two and a half, three hour long episodes, which, you know, you, you produce and edit a podcast. You know, the amount of work that goes into yes. a podcast, you know, the research you do before you sit down. Um, and then I think a lot of people don't really understand the amount of work that goes into a podcast after you stop mm-hmm. recording, you know, you have to, you know, go through those recordings and you, you know, you do your edit process and everybody's got a different process. You know, you'll take out ums and, you know, my, my goal is always to make people sound as good as they can sound. And, you know, I'm in an environment where I remember when, when I was living in my apartment in Vegas, you know, there's plenty of episodes where you hear sirens in the background. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do my best to get rid of all those noises. And as people know, I have birds and dogs and I hear I got kids running around to yell and scream in the background. I've, I've been there. Yeah. So a, a, another thing was in, in order to, ch- you know, sort of challenge myself to do these, you know, shorter episodes, but, you know, have them be full of good content, but then also just to make the edit easier for myself. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, unless there's any other, well, um, I did, I did. There was one thing I, cause I go all over the place. So I apologize to your listener. I did want to say the reason why I don't watch this film as much as the other ones. It's not because of the good writing. It's not because of the great acting. It's not because uh, I I can always watch it with them and doing anything. The reason why is I have a hard time with drug movies. Mm like drug use movies. And so this film, and I know it was kind of the flavor of the day in the nineties drug films, like from train spotting and what have you. I know they did a lot of it back then. And they, thankfully movies have kind of slowed down on that. Cause I, I don't like needles. I don't, that sequence of the heroin going in the blood coming up a little bit. Like, Ugh, it's just <laughs> so gross. Um, and then the uh, Umas or uh, Uma's nose bleeding from mm-hmm. the cocaine overdose. Then of course the needle into the chest, all those sequences aren't fun for me. Yeah. Like, like there's a whole scene of, yes, she's Odin, the recovery. Like I, I don't get any kind of joy. I don't think it's funny. I'm not, I don't think it's clear. They're all panicking, yelling at each other. Where's my book? I don't know. Where's my book? Why are you bringing her here? Like it's stressful. I agree. But part of me is just like, it, it doesn't push the story really other than the fact that they connect at the end by saying, and I'll tell you the joke because they've had a moment together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's what they've bonded over. But uh, yeah, the whole idea of heroin use, drug use in films, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy drug heavy films. Mm-hmm. Like I still, I fear molding in Las Vegas, stuff like that. I just don't, I don't get a kick out of it. Yeah. I don't get a kick out of people being high and getting overdosed. And so that's one reason why I don't rewatch this film a lot. It's because uh, it's drug heavy. 
Uh, no, it's understandable. And, you know, you mentioned fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And it, it's funny. I have such a weird history with that. It's it's now it's it's my all time favorite book. Um, there was yeah, you've a, mentioned that. Yeah. There was a point where I've read it every year um, wow. around Thanksgiving break. But I saw that movie in theaters when it came out and absolutely hated it. I, I hated their behavior. Um, I, I <laughs> thought it was a ridiculous, silly, unnecessary movie. And then for whatever reason, I watched it again when it came out on home video and it hit me a completely different way. Um, but that's for, uh, for another podcast. And maybe one day um, on Big Screen Book Club, which is another podcast that I dust off every now and then, um, I'll cover that film. But I completely understand that, Ryan. And that's a completely valid you know, reason not to enjoy the movie as much as you enjoy some of his other films. I mean, it's as I've gotten older... I've when I was in my 20s and probably early 30s, I loved watching movies that made you really effing depressed. (laughs) And now you have to twist my arm to make me watch something where people go through, you know, unless it's a horror movie where, you know, you know what you're signing up for. But like, I don't want to see, you know, people struggling or. Or, or going through bad shit. I mean, life is bad enough as it is for, you know, us at, at certain points, you know, when I go to the movies, I just want to escape. And it, it's, it's so funny how you sort of, you know, your tastes evolve as you get older, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, those films that I watched and enjoyed um, that made me feel like shit back then um, right. helped, you know, develop me to, to the, the, the person I am today and the, the film watcher I am today. But it's so funny if you look at favorite films, you know, that I had probably around the time of Pulp Fiction, you know, Pulp Fiction is probably one of the only ones that's still on that list. And I think that again, speaks to um, the strength of that film is, you know, it's, it's a film that, 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 that can hang in there um, even after 25 plus years. Agreed. Yeah. So um, any final thoughts uh, about Pulp Fiction um, for you in, in March of 2021? Well, I just, uh, it was good to watch it again. It's been a while. It's It's been a little bit of a while just for the reasons I mentioned. So it was good to rewatch it and uh, it made me enjoy it again for the first time because it's been that long. And, uh, but it also made me, grateful that it does exist because i am a huge quentin tarantino fan but i think his movies are getting better i'm enjoying the older wiser quentin i like his polished films because i still think they're still intelligent i still think they're unique uh, i know they're not gritty and raw like his early films but i think as we grow older as adults or as humans we do soften a little bit in our in our lens as they say softens a little bit and that's okay and i don't think there's anything wrong with it i don't want all of his movies to be just brutal and dark and dirty uh, i do like that he's continued to be an innovative great challenging director but also seems like an okay guy like thankfully he has stayed away from the harvey weinstein stuff allegations and um even though he was in that circle and around that time I, I think it's my understanding hopefully i can say that where i don't think he's had any issues no, he just seems to really like feet a lot more than people oh, that's probably what should. <laughs> you know, he has an absolute foot fetish. And he loves Uma's feet. He shows them a lot in both uh, Kill Bills and Pulp Fiction. And yeah, he loves the feet. And that's yeah. okay. That's, uh, you know, some people do. Maybe he gets more butts in the seat with feet. There you go. Butts in the seat with feet. With ben Tarantino. Because there, there are people who have a real foot fetish, my friend. Yeah, well, and, and he actually served it in uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. He gets Salma Hayek's big, uh, big toe in his mouth. I really wish there was something else in his mouth. Okay, so, well, there you go. Uh, 
Boy. Yeah. Um, uh, great, great conversation, Ryan. Thanks, you, brother. You, um, you, you brought some great stuff to my attention. And uh, we definitely, sooner than later, need to sit down for that uh, worst of the best. Uh, I'm sure yeah. it'll, it'll be a, a, a fun discussion. And again, I'll include links to all of uh, the stuff we chatted about in the show notes. So um, please do check those show notes because, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of good information in there sometimes. And uh, Ryan, again, I just want to thank you for um, for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again real soon. Sounds great. Thank you, brother. We'll do it again. All right, cool. Take care.